Sligo O'Toole podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk. Welcome to the Sligo O'Toole In Conversation podcast. My name is Brian O'Neill and my guest today is Dr. John Moriarty. John is a fellow in the Centre for Evidence and Social Innovation at Queen's University and he is also a sociology lecturer at Queen's as well. John, thanks very much for being on the show today. Thank you, Brian. So I would imagine for a, uh, a researcher or academic, COVID is kind of like the, the ultimate case study because we've, we seem to have um, a whole new way of working thrust upon us within uh, a very short space of time. So are, are you f- interested? Are you watching closely how all this pans out? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a complete... Um what would you call a disruptor paradigm change uh, so for anyone who's interested in work and the work that we do um, and and how we organize our lives around work uh, it has been a fascinating period it, it is also uh, you know uh, and a time where we kind of have to adjust a lot of what we think to be normal or conventional wisdom or understood um, basic principles um, because the, the Im- impact on on work and on uh, industry and the economy is is just so profound uh, that I think will be um, we we will I think eventually refer to a, a pre-COVID moment and uh, and a post a post-COVID world even in the scenario where uh, a COVID a COVID vaccine will um, will adjust things um, in terms of how we can organize society I think so much has changed in people's lives in this in this lockdown period. Um, that that will really feed into what becomes normal in the future. Yeah, I, what I find uh, most interesting about it is, is kind of like how inertia plays a role in human psychology and organizational psychology in that we, we've had, I mean, I've been using the web now for God, like 25 years. So we've had like video conferencing, we've had all these tools before and they've been around for a while. Um, but people didn't really embrace them too much, you know, because people people kind of don't really like change and they don't really like, you know, a new ways of working. So it, it's, it was interesting how when people are forced to change, like literally within um, a week or two, that it's incredible how you can go from one adopting all these new technologies and new ways of working. Absolutely. That's, that's such an important point that like doing things the way we always did them. Uh, and doing things that are familiar is such a huge part of uh, how we organize things. Um, I mean, even just just taking this this conversation that we're having today, I mean, had we been having this conversation in January, it's very possible um, I would have uh, made my way across Belfast. We would have been sitting in the one room. Um, you know, I might have gotten up on my bike, so I probably would have burned a few extra calories, or if it was raining really hard, I might have gotten in my car. and emitted a little bit of extra carbon into the atmosphere uh, and um, it probably wouldn't have occurred to us um, when we're not physically that far distant uh, to do this thing remotely um, and to conduct the interview in the same way that you conducted your interview last week uh, with your contributor from, from, from Texas. So basically to treat us all as if we're, we're interacting on a long distance basis. Um, and when you start to think out from the implications of that, I mean, if I'd made that journey, how many shops and business would would I have passed? You know, how would it, you know if I needed to repair my bike, could I have just called into a shop? 
you know, I could would have basically organized my entire economic life around physical proximity to things and people. And when you take that principle of proximity away and you actually invert it and say, well, actually, we can't be proximal to one another anymore. Um, we have to really rethink what we think of as as an as as an economy. Um, and as you say, that goes for individual behavior as well. You know, we, we will be rethinking and we have been rethinking, you know, is it is it is it normal to be having is it normal is it professional if you like to be having a conversation you know as part of one's work in one's uh, spare room uh, with the with the wallpaper the way it is uh, behind you and so on um, and it has just been really interesting watching people um, adapt um, and as you say realize some of the opportunities that technology has but also realize some of the values and some of what people were getting out of uh, their daily routine that maybe they didn't appreciate in the past. Yeah, because I think it's, I mean, I, I've always worked from home. So for me, a lot of this stuff isn't actually too new. I mean, the, the issue is we, we have a five-year-old and he's off school. So that was the biggest challenge, you know, kind of homeschooling and minding him. Um, but as far as work-wise, I mean, I, I was all, all set up already, you know, for, for working from home. But I, I know for a lot of people, if, if you're new to it, um, it can be quite a strange experience because I find it unusual the way like a lot of friends of mine are still kind of keeping to the same work structure and working the same hours. Because um, I always think, like me personally, because I'm self-employed, I will only work probably three or four hours solid work a day because I know normally in a job that's all you ever get done. The rest of the time is, is meetings and interruptions and chats and, you know, and, you know, arsing around the internet. And so if you can actually get a solid block done. And I kind of worry that a lot of people are kind of um, trying to do too much. Do you know what I mean? When work from home, they're, they're trying to like cram everything, work as they were before, work work longer, actually, I would actually say, than ever working in offices. I think you're absolutely right, right? So nine to five is a really interesting phenomenon in and of itself because it's something that we've maintained into the 21st century even though it's really a creation of the factory dominated era of uh, industrial production uh, and the idea that you can just break 24 hours into three eight hour shifts um, and when you're thinking about a factory floor you can quite easily equate time with productivity because if people are just doing repetitive tasks then the more the longer they do them the more uh, tasks they get through but we know that now a lot of uh, modern work um, as you say involves a lot of breaks uh, sometimes you can have one um, productive hour in the day or one productive half hour or the article that you spend um, half an hour writing uh, for Slugger might be better than the one you spent uh, five hours toiling over the previous day so that equation between time and productivity is gone and actually as as I think you're kind of alluding to there is now some research that suggests that spending you can over you can spend too much time on things that it can become counterproductive at a certain point because you're not allowing uh, basically your brain to process things where it needs it needs rest so if you keep throwing yourself in an effortful way at a task you're not necessarily improving the quality of what you're doing um so yeah you, you you're right it i think this moment again has made people think about well okay if i have to balance childcare and a job um and we now live in this world of, of, of a lot of two income 
household. So a lot of people are doing, well, so my wife and I are doing this shift pattern where one of us will work a morning and do child, and the other one will do childcare, and then we swap around. And like neither of our employers has said, your productivity has has shot down. And I think we would generally say we're we're probably doing okay in terms of productivity. And I think a lot of people are having this experience. Um, what I also think is going on is because people don't have to make the effort to get to the place they used to work, a lot of people don't. Um, so they're not sitting in traffic for as long. They're not spending as long getting parked. They're not spending as long getting ready in the morning. They feel that there's extra time and extra energy and that automatically the best thing to do is to reinvest that into their into their work. So people do sometimes end up working longer because they feel like they can or they always felt like the workday was, was too short. I think if we carry on with this pattern of people working between uh, office and home, um, that we'll start to reach an equilibrium where people start to realize there's a there's an optimal um, uh, work pattern for, for each job and it isn't necessarily the same for every job and it isn't necessarily just more time equals more stuff done. Yeah, because I think um, what people are realizing isn't is that the issue is not people skiving or not working. The issue is sometimes people overworking and, and not taking proper rest and kind of work intruding into family life you know especially if you don't have a proper home office and you're working from the, the kitchen with small kids running around underneath your feet so uh, that I, I think sometimes there, there's a risk i think of people kind of burning themselves out you know trying to do too much during all this yeah i i also think there's a big risk of people sort of internalizing the entire economic crisis and particularly maybe people uh, who don't have kids or people who have bigger homes and ha- have office space and they see they're trying to interact with their colleagues who have um, kids running around or who might, you know, not have uh, the, the space in the house to create, you know, a, a dedicated workspace. And then the, those people who feel like they have more kind of bandwidth and time and space feel like they have to proportionally carry uh, the burden. And I think just generally in one of the things that fascinates me about work in general is how it teaches us to internalize other people's values. So we learn to kind of assimilate what a company and a group of individuals expects from us. And we call that our role. And then very often then when people ask us, how are we doing in our jobs? We'll reflect on the things that other people expect of us rather than the things that we want ourselves and and the things that, that drive and motivate us. And uh, what make us feel like we're doing uh, doing good in our lives. So this is another moment where people have to make an adjustment of like, well, okay, work has work has radically changed. The economy is under threat. How does that? How do I respond to that? And how is that partly my responsibility? And I think in a couple of years' time, we'll when we reflect and we have some more um, uh, data and more information about how people responded, I think we will find that people that this was a crisis that people took quite quite personally. In a sense, the 2008 crisis or cr- crash and crisis was so abstract. It was, you know, things losing value that people couldn't necessarily see. And of course, eventually some companies started to suffer and some people's mortgages started to suffer, but it happened quite slowly, whereas this happened quite suddenly and was so pervasive and affected everybody's life and could be seen so visually by people. So. I really do think this, um, yeah, that this this one w- will be a game changer in a way that previous crises maybe haven't. Yeah, I mean, a lot of your research is around mental health and work. Uh, 
even before this crisis, um, there was kind of two major issues I see with with kind of like a lot of work, especially like knowledge work, is it's kind of first one is it's everlasting for a lot of jobs. There's no obvious finish line so so you're in a factory making cars you know you go in you make four cars or whatever it is you go home you forget about it whereas a lot of knowledge work it's kind of ongoing it's continuous like you're you'll be researching or writing articles and it's like a constant stream almost and then you get this kind of like um because you can now work from anywhere by carrying a smartphone you could be working at home, you could be working, queuing for the coffee shop. You could be working, you know, having your out for a meal. That in some ways, there's no escape from work. You know that that kind of demarcation is now gone. And how do you think that is kind of affecting kind of people's kind of mental health and the, the ability not to switch off? Right. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So I think those those are all huge issues. Um, the always on um, culture. Uh, like again, I mean, so part of why it's not necessarily productive to be throwing time at things constantly is like that's energy that people are taking up. That's emotional energy, and I think we underplay the role of emotion in work. We we maybe it hasn't you know been a major story of in economics or in 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 the the story of capitalism, but a huge part of this modernity era that we're in um, where a lot of stuff is produced far away and then a lot of work amounts to kind of managing um, managing people and managing um, managing wealth to an extent as well um, and people don't necessarily have a tangible you know connection to the outcomes of their work so a lot of it becomes a lot of it becomes imagined and a lot so we've we've started to hear a change in how companies talk and project where they talk about they're really interested in talent they're really interested in passion they want you know often passion will appear in job descriptions and job advertisements so they want people who are emotionally invested um, and they're uh, in their work doing kind of you know sort of living their dream or fulfilling some personal set of, of goals and values and ambition and all of that um, you know is, is, is great in some ways um, but is like exhausting and taxing in lots of other ways um, and I think part of the um, the sort of impact that work has on mental health now is just the amount of time that people are spending reading one another's people, one another's uh, cues, one another's emotions, um, uh, decoding all of that, you know, really complex uh, information and feeding it back against, well, you know, am I doing, uh, am I doing good in the world? Am I doing uh, something that's satisfying to me? Um, am I, am I actually achieving what's what's expected of me? Uh, so the the always on the the having the mobile phone there as a constant sort of tie uh, that anchoring people to work and the fact that it, you know you felt it vibrate so you know that there's an email you know that could have been your boss, I think that takes away some of the time that you know we we're, we should really be using to uh, to to do some kind of deeper deeper processing and relaxation and connect to the many other strands of life. Um, family life, community involvement, uh, physical activity, 
so much of our work is kind of cerebral and doesn't we don't use all of our bodies in our work um uh so so that's taking us away from those other important moments that's 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 good because i mean i think what people don't really realize is that the mind and the body need rest. I mean, you, you'll probably know this, uh, this concept of the, the default mode network on the brain, which essentially says that during downtime and quiet time, the kind of brain uses that, that time to kind of organize thoughts and store memories and, and all the rest. And then if you're not giving the brain any time to switch off, you know, you're just feeling it kind of constant noise that it can never really process. And that's just why we end up with these kind of scatterbrained uh, reflexes that are just kind of firing all over the place from one tweet to the next really yeah and even people going all the way up to the point at which they fall asleep essentially on just means they aren't even like aren't even fully at rest uh, when they're asleep and are switching straight back on when they wake up uh, so as you say like our rest isn't just the time when our eyes are closed um, and our consciousness switches to, to sleep you know rest is supposed to be sort of a gradual uh change of state over the course of the day um and yeah and we won't know for a, a long time you know i mean we're talking about we won't know about the impact of covid for a long time because it's still happening now um and the social impacts of it are still uh revealing themselves to us now but the actual the smartphone era is still uh is still very young uh, you know, we're we're only talking about. I mean, I show my students a chart of, uh, of of internet usage and the point at which most internet usage switched from PCs to mobile phones is only in the last sort of six or seven years, um, as smartphone usage has has increased. Um, so that's like that's like we're still at kind of year zero of that era of 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 technology and of connectivity, and we don't know what impact it's going to have us on us in the long term um, and I, th I think as individuals we we need to be monitoring how much we're, uh, we're we're wedded to that and how much we're allowing that shape our experience so during the during the work from home i mean there's kind of a lot of utopian talk about people working from home more and uh, less commuting and you know better for the environment and, and all that type of stuff but what a lot of people are saying like is they're, they're kind of going insane stuck in the house and, and they kind of miss the social aspect of, of work and they kind of miss I mean commuting is obviously a pain but some friends tell me well like it takes me half an hour to go home but during that half an hour I kind of decompress you know I, I kind of forget about work I can chill out and listen to some music or a podcast or whatever and uh, so a lot of people are kind of missing these kind of like the social sides, you know, to it. Um, so I suppose it'll probably not go one extreme or another. We'll end up with um, people maybe working from home one or two days a week into the office for a few days. I mean, is that the way you kind of see it kind of panning out? So, yeah, I see the acceptance of remote working now that we've all had to accept it. I think the general acceptance of one or two people calling into a meeting um, th that not being seen as an, as an exceptional thing to accommodate uh, in a lot of workplaces where it previously if there was a meeting on you know unless you have a reason not to be there the expectation is that you're is that you're physically there so you you make the energy output and the investment to actually to actually physically be there I see the tolerance for 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 remote engagement 
particularly when it comes to things like international travel. Um, but it is interesting to reflect on like why, I mean, it's, I say, okay, smartphones and, and, and web conferencing and so on are relatively new or it's new that we've had the degree of connectivity and strength of internet to support it. But like the ability to teleconference as it were, you know, to uh, to meet remotely, like that's not all that new, but the, the in-person meeting, uh, whether it's between two people or multiple people has been very resilient to technological changes. People have, have still wanted to cross great distances to meet in person. And I think you're alluding to the reason to that for that, which is that one, you know, we actually like people, you know, we're, you know, on average people get energy from other people um, and get, uh, you know, nourishment and warmth and empathy and human connection. It's kind of one of the reasons we do a lot of this um, work collectively is to is to maintain that um, you know that 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 physical that that full body embodied connection with one another. Uh, also, in terms of intelligence and productivity, we get a lot of information from one another's physical presence. Uh, you know. Uh, okay, I can see a two-dimensional picture uh, of you as we, as we talk, and I can actually see myself, which it would be unusual for an in-person meeting as well. Um, but you know, in a room, you know, I'd, I you'd get a fuller sense of somebody's body language. Um, I express myself a lot with my hands, and sometimes the text of what I say doesn't make an awful lot of sense when I when I listen to it back or read it back. But what the point I've been making in a room is often, you know, through. Um, through making eye contact or through 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 gestures, um, and replacing that isn't straightforward at all, and there, there there will be something lost. And I think one of the risks then is that if there's people who, because of circumstances, are able to get back into physical proximity uh, with their colleagues more quickly than others, and some people are be, are going to become the dial-in colleagues, uh, while other people become the in-person colleagues. Um, it's kind of a, in microcosm a version of what some uh, outsource um, companies experience where the, the people who, who dial in from a distance feel like they're disconnected from the center of power and the real decision making because once they press the red button and they hang up they no longer have access to the people in the room who as they walk out to the room to the water cooler continue the conversation continue the connection. Uh, so there are risks, um, even though I do think it will be more, it will be more common. We have to be really conscious about the implications it has for how we work uh, together as collectives. I think that there could be an upside in that once you strip away the kind of politics of the office, in terms of you know in every organisation there's kind of like you know the the bootlickers and the kind of the people that kind of seem to spend more hours smoothing than doing work and okay once you strip away all that and you're just judging people on the quality of the work then there is an argument to say that that has implications in terms of reducing inequality and making it more level playing field do you know what I'm kind of getting that so it's kind of less kind of uh you're kind of being judged on the work itself because that's kind of that's the only thing you, you can see essentially. It's a really interesting question as to whether um, this could have an impact on on inequality or on I, I would say more broadly kind of power dynamics within organizations. Uh, and it's an interesting question of like what do if people were kind of 
you know, using what, you know, what, what we might say kind of cultural capital or using the force of their personality um, to be the main part of their work and, you know, being seen to be, you know, socially connected and, 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 and using those kind of skills. And those are skills. Uh, if they don't have the same outlet for those skills, well, you know, what, what happens to them or what happens to their trajectory or does it become a little bit more... Uh, so I, I hesitate with the word meritocratic, but more based on, as you say, um, more tangible outputs that people can that people can measure uh, in in workplaces and more hard and fast metrics of, of of performance. And undoubtedly, whatever new pattern we settle into, um, organizations will uh, will find a way to. You know, assign value to to different people's performance um, and different people's roles, um, and 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 everyone is going is is going to have to adapt. I think, by and large, in this conversation, we've been mainly talking about how people's, you know, you know their their personal productivity is going to be impacted. But as you say, that you know, you you'd have to think that 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 some people who work kind of more privately or like to kind of work. You know, plow their own furrow a bit. That they still gain something from uh, the role of, of of people who are who are more collaborative or more more effusive. Um, so yeah, no, that's a, it's a it's a, re- it's a really interesting question that I don't have a really snappy answer to. So what what because I I, I kind of I, I studied management at Queens myself and I, I've kind of worked in a lot of organisations over the years. What I always find interesting is that in a lot of organisations, there's almost um, there's, there's people who actively work to stop other people working, okay? Now, not, maybe not consciously, but you have like a whole level, kind of almost like mid-managers, who's key. Management, management's one of those things, people that are kind of given the task without actually having any particular training or aptitude for the job. So they just spend a lot of their time interrupting people who are trying to get on with the actual work. And then you have like this whole kind of level of administrators, which you'll be familiar with working on the university. And it's almost like they may not, in, in theory, they're there to kind of assist and help. But in some ways, they just kind of seem to create more and more work and more and more admin work for the people who are actually working. And so you kind of have, so if you strip it out that people are working from home, without under the direct, you know, literal supervision of, of managers or bosses. Then do you know what I mean? It kind of goes back to what we're again we're talking about this kind of the purity of the work. Yeah. Um I'm blanking on the the name, but there's there's a gentleman who's written a series of, of really interesting books about where we are with productivity and, and with work. David uh, David Graeber, the, er- uh, the Bullshit Jobs one of it? I don't it's I, I know that one as yeah. well I don't think I I don't think this is the same person I'm thinking of but um I I, I didn't I listened to an interview with him recently where he was talking about his next book is going to be about email just solely about email and again uh, tell me about there we yeah, go yeah. thank you um yeah and his 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 one of his lines is like there is a good case for some 
uh, people in organizations just not to have email. Just like if I hire a, a web developer and I'm hire, hiring them for their coding skills, I don't need people to have a, a means of introduce of interrupting them. I don't need something on their computer screen, which I need, which, which is where I need them to work, uh, which is serving to take them away from from what I want them to do. And I, I, when he when he was talking about that, I had been thinking for years about email and had we really sussed out a way of using it. And in my head, the size of the the volume of email in a given day is kind of it's just it's just that it's an index of distraction. It's an index of how much people are getting distracted uh, by one another uh, from um, from often the the underlying <laughs> workload that the email uh, refers to. I suppose if you, I suppose what uh, maybe uh, you might hear back from uh, somebody who studied management. Um, uh, in in great depth or studied organizations is that there's probably there's a there's a portion of work that isn't really assigned to anyone that isn't really anyone's job that has to be just kind of collectively absorbed by the organization one of the functions uh, of big organizations and the kind of management structures you're referring to is to divert people uh, enough of their time into that shared work that isn't easily divvied up into roles to devote enough of their time to that that it gets done or it gets it gets serviced. Um, uh, so I yeah. Um, no, so fine. you're yeah. you're but you're so you're asking about um, you're asking about people you know whether physical interruption is going to be reduced uh, if people are working remotely um, and in a sense. You know, you'd worry that email would replace that, or that uh, a lot of the online work tools. Um, and just by the way, way, I mean, if you think like COVID is universally, uh, you know, economically, you, you know, economically damaging, and it's disruptive to so many businesses. But there are obviously some in some sections of, and a lot of big tech who are making a lot on their products uh, becoming part of people's people's daily lives. So we need to watch the extent to which um, power is being further concentrated into those companies. But if a lot of uh, work interaction is shifting onto those platforms, you know, you'd have to be wary about whether that's just going to re replace some of what you might uh, hope was was reduced. Um, but it, it is, it's quite possible that people working in their own homes will feel more comfortable just shutting some of that off and um, shutting down and getting through through a pile of work in a way that if you're you know, walking in and out of, out of uh, walking around an office, bumping into colleagues, you have more cues to remind you of other things that you might be doing with your time. Uh, so it's possible that periods in the week of working alone or working um, in a concentrated space uh, might help people, might help organizations get a, bit, a better balance between deep work and that sort of more superficial interrupty kind of work that you're referring to. Because I think one of the, the other strange kind of paradoxes in, in a lot of the, this kind of modern work is we, we create new tools to solve um, existing problems. So, for example, uh, people get a lot of emails, so we'll say, right, we're going to set up Slack or Microsoft Teams and we're going to switch communications over to these new channels. But what happens is the, the kind of old channels still get used, so you just end up with more and more channels. So somebody will say, 
I sent you that message and you go, well, did you email it to me or did you send it on Slack or did you send it on WhatsApp or on Messenger or was it a text? <laughs> you know, and so you end up with just like 10 channels of communication that are all kind of binging and away at you and uh, it just kind of creates... what. So what we, we kind of attempt to solve these issues and just create 16 more problems in, in the solving of it. Mm. Yeah. Although I wouldn't ignore some of the opportunities that some of those different modes. I mean, so so my 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 problem with email is that it's not in any way opt in. Like, you have to do a lot of work to kind of configure your email inbox so that you're only getting things that are germane to what you want to to your kind of task set. Uh, otherwise, it's just ways for it's a way for people to access you. Um, so. You know, a certain amount of I, I have some sympathy with the the, the will of some teams to, to, to move on to platforms that are more that are like a modeled like uh, Slack and, and Teams or kind of more modeled more on what, like web forums, I guess, where where it's opt in. It's as as many people as want to participate in a particular conversation can can opt into it at a, at a given moment. Uh, and the idea of having different channels and different things that you might take an interest in in a given day whereas an email is like you know is a constant need to ch change your change your focus um, group email threads can I, can I find can be really exhausting because you know once three people have responded to the thread then everyone feels that they have to do a group response uh, and, and so on um, but yeah, it's it, I think we're still a lot of these technologies and the integration of them are still quite young and some of them are really only being tried out for the very first time now that we've had to, as you as you said in your open question, uh, in in COVID. So I would still give it a couple of years and see if we can actually figure out what's the right use of email. So so document sharing obviously is a big thing um, in 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 my line of work in, in academia where we're writing papers together, um, and a lot of people have been trying for a long time to move people onto. Uh, shared folders and cloud, um, you know, doing editing collaboratively on the cloud rather than constantly updating uh, emails and having to search back through versions and things like that. Um, so a certain amount of opt-in, okay, there's a period where we're all kind of working on the cloud, but then there'll be a function where not everyone will have had the time to devote. So there'll be an email kind of roundup at the end of a, at the end of a, uh, at the end of a, of a round of, of edits or whatever. I feel like in a couple of years, we might be closer um, to integrating these different platforms so that each is being used for its correct purpose. Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, the last question maybe just to, to finish us off is, um, I, I think what we really need is for people to be adaptable and the, the the great mental health phrase that is, is kind of resilience essentially isn't it and because we, we are i mean we're still thinking a lot of these things through and we're still kind of discovering what works and there's likely to be more changes but in some ways i know a lot of people absolutely detest uncertainty and they like you know kind of structure but we may not have it for a while so it's kind of um, it, it, it's like what what a lot of people are doing in mental health generally is this idea of, of kind of increasing resilience hmm? well I think actually your your other phrases of adaptability and 
uh, kind of tolerance of uncertainty. I think those are those are definitely things where we can probably you know train and and learn from one another. And just you mentioned mental health in that question. I mean, I mean, I think mental health is actually a reasonably good example of where I suppose industry or the economy or the 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 work space in general has actually adapted to a lot of new information in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, the awareness of um, mental ill health and people's mental health uh, problems um, and uh, I suppose the, 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 the medical side of that, I mean, that's increased, that level of awareness has increased massively, certainly in the 10 years that I've been studying this and, and I would imagine in, in you know, in, in an even shorter amount of time where there are a lot of more open conversations being had. And that's making people aware of not everyone being an equal unit. So when we're talking about, you know, productivity and people, you know, we do actually need to kind of ground ourselves in a social sense of, of, of one another as 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 people and as individuals. Um, and just to kind of like have a, a greater tolerance of people having good days and bad days and having good moods and, and, and bad moods. Um, and I think a lot of that information is making its way into ma- the mainstream thought uh, of, of, of a lot of organizations and some of the organizations um, that I work on, with on uh, on projects are, are, are kind of saying to us um, in, in interviews and focus groups like that this is new information, but it's good information. And some older staff are saying it's information I wish we had when we started and maybe we'd have been more aware and maybe you know some people would have been able to 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 stay on longer in work uh, had they known how to cope with uh, stress or um you know maybe we'd be better friends with some of our older colleagues if we'd been able to to manage each other um uh, be, be more in tune with with one another's emotions at an earlier stage so i think in that broader sense of uh, we are we actually are a really adaptable species and i think slugger is or, sorry do edit that please mm-hmm. um and i think uh, i think COVID is quite a good example of like where we we actually can adapt to really acute changes in circumstance and the environment quite quickly um so i would be relatively optimistic um that we can develop a tolerance uh, for a certain amount of of uncertainty, as you say, um, just uh, just through exposure and just 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 through practice. Yeah, because as you say, I mean, hu- humans are adaptable. Uh, that's why we see us survive so, so long, yeah. I suppose. Well, yeah, yeah I, I, oh, I, and while I would be very optimistic about that at the level of organizations and teams and individuals, what the challenge then is for society is for us as a society and for governments to be equally adaptable and equally flexible in their thought. Because again, going back to the start of the conversation, you know, people have been very concerned about economic impacts uh, of COVID, but what COVID also does is change our sense of what the economy is. I mean, if proximity, physical proximity isn't going to be important anymore, then a lot of old knowledge and old conventional wisdom on um, what is, you know, what's good business, you know, location, 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 that that equation has totally changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we, so we need to also demand uh, adaptability from the people who shape economic policy and think, um, you know, this is being framed as a recession, but really it's a new event in our modern economic understanding. And like, you know, you know, if a meteor 
hit a football pitch and the commentator said, well, oh, that's going to be really difficult for Linfield now that they're three players down. You know, I think everyone in the audience would say, I think you're missing the bigger point yeah. that a meteor has hit the football pitch. I don't think what happens in the rest of the football game is the most important thing. I think how we adapt to this new reality uh, is, is, is the bigger picture. So I would think similarly about the people shaping economic policy and, and, and hope that, um, you know, that they can, you know, rethink what is like long-standing economic uh, orthodoxy so that as a society we can flexibly respond uh, to this new challenge. Okay, well I think we'll leave it there. So that was uh, Dr. John Moriarty from Queen's University Belfast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and like it. And thanks for joining us. The Slugger O'Toole podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk.